0: Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. Well, if you've been here uh, the last few weeks, no doubt you'll notice that uh, we, our lectionary readings in our gospel readings have been in the gospel of Luke. Uh, And Lori, who uh, read scripture this morning, but who preached last week, her and I had a conversation a couple weeks ago, and then again this morning, about how one of the things that happens in the second half of ordinary time is lectionary readings get a lot more difficult. Uh, We've hit a little bit of a turning point in Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 9, Luke describes Jesus as turning his face toward Jerusalem like flint. There's this pivot in the journey of Jesus toward Jerusalem that will ultimately end in his death and resurrection. And there's also a shift that happens in the tone and the tenor of Jesus' teaching. There is a bit more urgency. He takes on the tone of an Old Testament prophet. And some of the more difficult sayings of Jesus come in the second half of Luke, as Jesus with this sense of urgency moving toward what has been known as the city of God. Like this one today, that if you wanna follow me, you must hate your father or your mother. Your husband, your wife, your family, your child, which some of us are like, done. <laughs> and then Jesus goes, and also life itself. Oh, 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 hold on. And what I want to mention off the top is what Jesus is not doing in these words. He's not denying the importance of family, he's not denying the property of living in supportive harmony with them. But when there is an urgent task to be done, as for Jesus and for us now there is, then everything else, including one's own life, must be put at risk for the sake of the kingdom. So Jesus is not saying money is unimportant, family is unimportant. But what Jesus is doing, because he is surrounded by crowds, in this gospel reading, he is not speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to the crowds that are beginning to gather because they're curious. They've come to see the famed prophet from Nazareth. And so Jesus begins to speak to them and he does what he's actually always done. He's done this with his closest friends, with his disciples, with his family, with the crowds and with you and with me, which is inviting us and compelling us to make a choice. He won't wrangle, he won't force, but he will push us on making a choice. Will they follow him, like actually follow him? To quit wandering around on the periphery to say yes to the radical availability of God's kingdom. To intentionally rearrange their lives and our lives to follow Jesus, to live as Jesus lives, to little by little begin to think as Jesus thinks, to increasingly become the kind of person that Jesus is. Now, I don't know how your Bible sort of adds the, uh, uh, the subject over the different passages. Even in the one that we use, uh, right above these uh, verses, it says the cost of discipleship. And oftentimes that is how this passage has been described. And I think rightly so, because Jesus, even in calling us to follow him, says, hey, you have to count the cost. To sit down and really think about the cost of what it means to follow me, because it does cost something. Even I love to talk about friendship with God, but if we're not careful and if I'm not careful, I also leave out the part that friendship with God at times can be dangerous because it calls us to move toward people we normally wouldn't move toward. To spend our time and our money and our attention and to direct it toward things that if you leave me to my own, I'm not going to spend my time and my money and my attention on those things. And so there is a cost of discipleship that is certainly true, but I think there's another angle here that I think is incredibly important for you and for me today. Dallas Willard wrote in The Divine Conspiracy that in addition to the cost of discipleship, and again, there is a cost, that we also need to be honest about the the cost of non-discipleship. There's a cost to discipleship, but as Dallas often said, there's also a cost to non-discipleship. Not only are we to consider the cost of uh, of, uh, uh, our yes, or excuse me, not only are we to consider the cost of our no to the availability of the kingdom. We must consider the cost of saying no to learn how to become a certain kind of person as we orient and align our lives with and to the very author of life and love, of the one who alone has the power and the authority to make all things new. I say this often, but again, the most important question that you and I can answer is who is our teacher? And all of us have a teacher. All of us have a formation and our formation and our trajectory can be answered by looking at the artifacts of our lives. Again, how we spend time and money, what we give our attention to, what we don't give our attention to. And there are ancient questions that we have been given to ask of our lives, of our, of our homes, of our churches, questions that I confess I don't ask enough questions like how then shall we live? Who is it that you seek? How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And I would actually submit to you this morning that it's not even enough to just simply ask these questions. I'm growing increasingly aware of my need to not only ask the questions, but to live them. Too often I offer quick answers. Who is it that you seek? The Lord our God. How then shall we live? Follow Jesus. Far often, too often I offer quick answers, but my life and your life is most often too complicated for quick answers. Any of us who have been through therapy, myself included, know the complicated nature of our lives. And when I think we are willing to slow down and live these questions, we discover, as Rowan Williams states, that Christ indeed answers our questions, but he also questions our answers. Christ indeed answers our questions, but he also questions our answers. How then shall we live? Who is it that you seek? How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land?" Now to take a little bit of a left turn, though I think it's connected. I would say that our rule of life as a church, which we have, is our response to these questions. Our rule of life as a community is our answer to these questions, how then shall we live? Who is it that you seek? And not only an answer, it is a response. It is an exploration of a way of living rooted in the freedom that is life in God rather than legalism, rather than license. Uh, Later on this fall, before Christ the King Sunday, which is the first Sunday before Advent, uh, we're gonna spend about four to five weeks walking through slowly um, our rule of life. But I wanna spend just a few moments on it this morning and we're gonna begin by reading it this morning. And it's gonna be up on the screen behind me as I read. Listen to our rule of life. It begins with, because we are a community in the way of Jesus, and Tom, I think there's a side for this. Because we are a community in the way of Jesus, we commit to be obedient to Jesus, submitting to him as Lord over our life, including our money, our sexuality, and our power. Because the Trinity forms us as a people designed for relationships, we commit ourselves to generous hospitality by living with one another in tangible expressions of community. Because the gospel renews everything, beginning by awakening our heart to true life, we will open ourselves to see and hear God, allowing God to restore our mind, our body, and soul. Because the kingdom of God rules over everything— We will join God's work of bringing shalom to our home, to Charlottesville, and to the world. And maybe you noticed, maybe you didn't notice, but our rule of life, like I think every good rule of life does, sends us in two directions. It sends us inward into the heart of God, but then it also sends us outward on a journey for the sake of the world. And friends, these are the constant movements for any woman, man, or child that would seek to become the kind of person who more and more follows Jesus. The movement more deeply into the heart of God, but then that movement takes us out into the world for the sake of the world on behalf of God. The community in Northumbria, who is the group that um, uh, published the Celtic Book of Daily Prayer that we're going to be using. Uh, They describe, they have a rule of life as well. It's one of the reasons why uh, there's so much resonance with that community there in Ireland. But they have two words for this movement, and it's availability and vulnerability. I think uh, that fits our rule well too. And I think there's wisdom in those two words because one is required for the other, is it not? To be truly available requires vulnerability and to be truly vulnerable requires availability. There's no vulnerability without proximity, without closeness. How then shall we live with vulnerability and availability? And I love that our rule doesn't prescribe It certainly is descriptive, yes, but isn't prescriptive. It doesn't tell you how you're going to do these things, how we're going to walk this way. Here's how to be vulnerable, here's how to be available. But rather, in effect, by leaving it a little open, what it is saying is, bring all your oddities. Bring all of your biases, your prejudices, Bring all your unique life experiences. Bring your Myers-Briggs, your Enneagram types. Bring your political affiliations, your cultural backgrounds. Bring all the knowledge and understanding of life. Bring it all with a posture of availability and vulnerability to God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Keep living the questions, how then shall we live? Who is God? Who am I? What is real? And I would argue this is at the heart of what true one anothering is. Like too often, myself included, we let ourselves off on one anothering, those who we are comfortable with. In the recent weeks, I've been on a little bit of a Thomas Merton kick and he wrote this and I sort of chuckled. He says, it isn't just a question of whether you are building a community with people that you naturally like. It is also a question of building community with people that God has brought together. Do you hear the difference there? It's one thing to build a community with people you like. It is another to be open and hospitable to those who God has gathered. Who's in charge there? You can talk. God. Who's the gatherer? Yeah, spoiler alert, still God. We are responding to the movement and the action of God, which is all of discipleship, is all of following Jesus, is all of life with God. It is one giant response to the God who has already acted. I think this is important because we always return to the reality that God gives different answers to different people in different situations and in different circumstances. Listen, y'all, it would in many ways would be so much easier to say, do this and don't do that. Just black and white, here we go, no gray. And in fact, here's what I'll say. This isn't in the notes, COVID fog, here we go. I think one of the things almost every one of us is experiencing in our family, in our city, in our nation, in our world, we talk about this polarization, we wanna blame it on everything. Social media, sure, probably doesn't help. We wanna blame it on whatever you wanna blame it on. But I think the reality of many of us, I mean, just going through a pandemic together is traumatic. And to experience that, not even, it just brings up all the other trauma we haven't dealt with, haven't been healed from. And almost all of us are exhausted. Almost all of us are weary, regardless of who you voted for or didn't vote for, of whether you thought we should wear a mask and not wear a mask, of what we should do with the vaccine or not do with the vaccine. Regardless, we're exhausted. And when we get exhausted, there is little room for nuance. There's little room for complexity because we're just so stinking exhausted. How do we even navigate? And so we double down and we retreat. And it's so natural. I'm not here to shame. I still am doing it. The SEC is just a better, better conference, y'all. <laughs> a, little, a little humor to bring it up a little bit. Georgia won big last night, so I'm just like riding. I was like, do I wear a Georgia shirt? I wear the collar. And I had to wear the collar. When we're exhausted, we have little room for complexity. We have little room for nuance. And so we double down. There are entire theological traditions made off of that movement. but that isn't our rule because that isn't our king. Even the heart of our church and our community of what we're hoping for is to always hold space for the gray, to walk in that third way, to not settle for easy answers, but just to acknowledge that we're all exhausted and that way is getting harder. But I think it's getting all the more important. because I actually think to move toward black and white binaries, there's no availability and there's no vulnerability because the availability is only to people who look like you and who you like. And the vulnerability isn't required because you basically say, believe everything I believe, ask no questions, pledge your allegiance to this particular way of thinking and then we'll let you in. There's a vulnerability needed there. You know you're safe. Availability and vulnerability is the way of the kingdom, the different way. Henri Nouwen puts it this way. He says, quote, A rule offers creative boundaries within which God's loving presence can be recognized and celebrated. It does not prescribe, but invites. It does not force, but guides. It does not threaten, but warns. It does not instill fear, but points to love. In this, it is a call to freedom, freedom to love, unquote. Availability, vulnerability to God and to one another. And listen, I know some of you aren't ready for that. To be available and vulnerable, you're like, I barely came this morning. Let alone to make myself available and vulnerable to God or to other people. We're not going anywhere. And so take your time. God is not anxious for you to move faster and quicker than where you are right now allows. And neither are we. Available and vulnerable. And so with that, I wanna read our rule of life again with that framework. Because we are a community in the way of Jesus, we commit to be obedient to Jesus, submitting to him as Lord over our life, including our money, our sexuality, and our power. Because the Trinity forms us as a people designed for a relationship, we commit ourselves to generous hospitality by living with one another in tangible expressions of community. Because the gospel renews everything, beginning by awakening our heart to true life, we will open ourselves to see and hear God, allowing God to restore our mind, our body, and our soul. Because the kingdom of God rules over everything, we will join God's work of bringing shalom to our home, Charlottesville, and the world. Can you hear it? Availability, vulnerability, an intentional rearranging of our lives to make ourselves available and vulnerable, first to God in the cell of our own heart, where we can seek him for his own sake, to make our home in God who has already made as home in us to receive the hospitality, restoration, and shalom of God. But then to be available and vulnerable to others, to extend what we have received, to welcome others as we would, as we would honor and welcome Christ himself. To be available to others through participation in God's restorative care by praying, interceding for the situations in the power of Holy Spirit to be available for serving our neighbors in various kinds of way, extending the shalom of God. May it be so, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you